0: This is The Strategy Inside Everything. I'm Adam Pierno. The Strategy Inside Everything is the podcast for people who think for a living. If this conversation gives you an idea, leads to a question, or makes you want to push back on something you hear, go to thatsnotaninsight.com, where you can leave a message or send me a voicemail. The best and most interesting will be added to the future episodes, and I can't wait to hear from you. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Strategy Inside Everything. I have today the author, the organizational psychologist, and the managing partner at Aroca, Fiona Murdon. Fiona, how are you?
1: I'm good, thanks, Adam. It's lovely to meet you and to chat to you.
0: Yeah. Um, would you do me a favor? And your your career background is a little different than some of the folks we've had on in the past. Would you mind giving people a sense of kind of what you've done and where you've been? Yeah,
1: sure. So I went to a university called Warwick University in the UK and did psychology, Bachelor of Science, and then thought, I can't be a clinical psychologist. It's too hard. I can't, you know, I can't deal with people who are upset all day, every day. So I chickened out of that and did a business master's and then went to work as a management consultant. Um, many years ago, at what used to be called Anderson Consulting, it's now Accenture, I was there for four years and worked at the London Stock Exchange, uh, Sony PlayStation for the launch of PlayStation 2. I actually worked with a marketing team there um, and worked at Disney, Buena Vista International. And then went back to university because I thought it's it's the people stuff I love. So I did an MSc, a Master of Science in Organizational Psychology. And then following that, went to work for a global boutique firm where we profiled leaders for FTSE 100, Fortune 500 companies, um, looking at, so for our in-depth psychological profile, looking back to their childhood up to where they are today, what were the things that might derail them? What, where would they need more support? What was their fit with the team that existed in the role already? How did their values fit with the organization? All those sorts of things. Um, and then 14 years ago, I founded Aroka, which did the same thing, but doing so under my direction rather than someone else's. Um, and then I've written two books um, and worked with doctors and surgeons and all sorts of different people. And I've absolutely loved my career.
0: When you when you founded Aroka and you, you mentioned that it's under your direction, which I, I noted that you said that. <laughs> what did you want to do differently than what you had been doing under the direction of a, you know, a boutique consulting firm or a, or a what was a big six consulting firm when you were in Anderson? Did you have well, a different philosophy or something you wanted to do differently? The
1: philosophy I actually brought to my old firm anyway, because I turned my, the boutique firm down originally, because I didn't like the way they did things. And they said to me at the time, oh, you're making a big mistake. I thought they're arrogant as well. <laughs> Not going well. And I actually worked for another company <laughs> very briefly and then thought, you know what, they were right. I was making a mistake. And I went back and I said, look, if I'm working here, the things that I want to do differently are. And so I did things my way at that company. Yeah. It was more the 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 fact that I by the time I 15 years ago I had my first daughter. And so and I was on maternity leave and I was a bit bored and the chief exec and the CFO of a company I was working with went to be CEO and chairman of a FTSE 100. Um, and one of the HR directors from that same company went to be HR director at Lloyds London and both lots of people heard I was bored, which I must have been moaning so much. Um and they said uh independently they both asked me to come and do some work with them and and it worked because it meant that I could I could have the level of challenge that I wanted working with senior people but I could do so completely on my terms. Um obviously not completely because you you know you, you're, you're in a, trying you're in to a construct, meet, yeah. Yeah exactly and you're trying to meet your client needs. But it worked with having a child and whilst now work is far more flexible even though that was only 15 years ago it it wasn't as easy to have that level of flexibility
0: yeah we were we culture was not ready for that level of flexibility or to or to give people that flexibility in their work we still yeah. wanted butts and seats at that point absolutely so, so you were pretty you were pretty lucky to have that that organization recognize that
1: yeah i mean i was pretty clear on what I wanted because when I'd worked for a lady at Accenture, one of the partners, I just saw that she she was miserable because she didn't see her daughter. Um, she enjoyed the work, but the other option was to just take a three day work a three day a week job in the in the head office, but not really doing work that stimulated her. Mm-hmm. So I actually went into my career as an organizational psychologist with that in mind. So I'd probably. Thought ahead a bit too far, um, and I was yes, I was lucky that that particular company approached me, uh, those people. But if they hadn't, I would have gone out there and looked for it anyway.
0: So when you went back to get your masters, do you think you were trying to chart that course yeah. from kind of ending up in button-down consulting world into something that you could create and chart your own course? Totally. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, I wanted—I know you've written two books. Um, I, I was interested in talking to you today about your your book Mirror Thinking um, and how it applies to people listening to this show. Uh, would you give people kind of a, a background of the book and kind of the theory of mirror thinking?
1: Yeah. So um, one thing I noticed working with senior leaders is they would say, "I don't really have any role models anymore." You know, I had role models when I was younger, but I don't really have anyone to look up to anymore. And I would say, I don't, I don't think that's true, you know, because do you think you're the best communicator in the world? And of course, everyone says, well, you hope everyone says no, because you can always improve your communication skills. And so I'd say, well, who is, who's the best person, either alive or dead or, and I would get leaders to piece together the different elements of what made up a role model for them. And I think the mistake was that people think it has to be everything in one person but it doesn't. Mm. And so I got more and more interested about role modeling and the mechanisms behind it. I was also really interested in social and emotional learning. And as a result, I wrote this book um, and it looks at the neuroscience behind how we learn through observation and not just through observation, it's actually through um, daydreaming, through using our own imagination and visualization, but being immersed in a social context. And there's something in the brain known as the mirror neuron. And that's the the functionality of how this all works. And it was discovered by an Italian professor called Rizzolati, Palmer University in 1992. Um, And I find this a bit sad because they were looking at uh, macaque monkeys. They were looking at parts of their brain to try and work out which parts of their brain were involved with grasping motion. But to do that, they had to take the top of their head off and have electrodes into their brain so I always think that's really sad but one day these uh, researchers were in the lab and they noticed that on the screens or there was activity on the monkey's brain in the area that involved grasping but they weren't doing anything they were sat still but the researchers were eating their lunch and they were putting their hand to their mouth and what was actually happening is the monkeys, through watching what the research was doing, were playing it over in their own mind.
0: They were they, they were re- feeling the, the effort of grasping through watching someone else grasp.
1: Absolutely. And what they realized is that's what happens in our own brain. So it's when we're watching sport, um, if we've ever caught a ball or thrown a ball, we get an element of that sensation because we've done that before and our brain is playing it over even though we're not carrying out that action but it goes all the way from things like uh, activities like that through to emotion so can you feel what someone else is feeling that's empathy and psychopaths for example can mirror what someone else is feeling but not actually feel it themselves so there's a lot of, there's loads of really interesting research and I'm not a neuroscientist. I talked to neuroscientists about right. it, um, like Marco Iacoboni, who's brilliant. Uh, he's head of brain sciences at UCLA. So generous with his time, brilliant man. Um, he's done some really interesting research on empathy and the mirror neuron and all sorts of things like that.
0: And, and so at the C-suite level you took this you took some of these findings and you tried to get people to find what could be observed mm-hmm. in other people to to create like partial role models or role models in vertical skill areas that they needed that improvement in
1: yeah absolutely and you'll find that people have done that um unknowingly to some extent but we can leverage it so much better if we do it consciously and we choose and we're deliberate about it.
0: How does it, is it in your, in your work, are you trying to expose them to someone in their daily life that they can learn from as a role model, or can it be anybody that they, that can be observed, they can learn from?
1: It can be anyone that can be observed. It can even be someone who's read about. So certain things when we read them or we hear them in a story will trigger the same areas in our brain in the same way. So it could even be a fictional character.
0: Oh, that's pretty interesting. Just by observing the way they're written or the way they're described or in someone in a film. Uh-huh. Are people resistant to that? Like I would imagine like CEOs have a have a sort of stereotypical reputation for for big ego. Are they resistant to the idea of taking on role models? real or fictional, or does fictional help them? Because it's like, well, it's not like comparing yourself to Bob J. Pick. It's, uh, it's Robert Downey Jr. And that's fine as Iron Man.
1: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, that's where I think that <laughs> maybe. <laughs> not, you're right not sure the he's the best role model
0: either, but.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure whether reality <laughs> kicks in or not. Uh, um, but uh, if you, if the thing is I tend to work with CEOs, so I might profile CEOs who have, A big ego but i won't then work with them because not because (laughs) i'm not because i'm special and i'm saying oh i won't work with them but they they're not interested the ones with the big ego aren't interested in learning got it so so the ones that you're having these conversations with are the ones who are intrigued interested open i would say that most (laughs) of the time they don't tend to use fictional characters it will be um It would be looking at someone like Martin Luther King for communication and saying, well, how how did he communicate? And it might be. But something like someone who's very good at negotiating, you might be the CEO and know you're not the best negotiator. That might be something you look at your um, one of one of your colleagues. Uh, It might be that you're looking to become more chairman or chairwoman like you look to the chair of your board. Um, So. Yes, it can be people in their immediate environment. It might be people who no longer alive. It could be watching on film. I mean, the downside with fiction and film is that the actual sequence as it plays out is not real. So, however much you know, there's the nuances aren't quite accurate.
0: Right, of course. When you when you're talking to someone who who is you're trying to guide towards a role model? Are they, when I think of the word role model, I think of someone either older than me or ahead of me in my career, you know, like literally looking up at a big brother or big sister or the person in the job that I would get promoted to. So is, is, does that take some coaching to say, no, it actually could be, it doesn't have to be someone in that role. That's quote unquote superior in that way. It could be someone, anyone around you can be a role model for some behavior if you're if you care, th- thoughtful about it.
1: I think there's, what you can use there is, is use language that they're familiar with. So reverse mentoring. If, if you introduce the concept of reverse mentoring, they say, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard about reverse mentoring and it's a good thing. And, and since I've been talking more about this publicly, the number of people at senior levels have said, Oh, I was I was paired with someone in a reverse mentoring scheme and I learned so much about digital. I just didn't know these things before. But also the process of mentoring someone you're learning and, and you can, I think if you, it involves a level of curiosity and open-mindedness, but good leaders have that. They want They want to know how they can learn.
0: How important is that low ego to curiosity? I mean, it you could be curious. You're usually not open-minded when you have that, that ego. If something if something encroaches on that ego, it's usually like the, the walls, the walls close in pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean ego is a problem.
0: Yeah. Is it is which is worse or which is more challenging to overcome? Ego or insecurity?
1: That's a good question. And I think the thing is. Well, in some ways, ego, because it's blinding. Um, Insecurity, if someone has reached the level of leadership, that insecurity can show itself as arrogance or ego. Mm -hmm. Or it can, and this is where I'm being a psychologist, or it can be channeled positively. So one lady I saw once, I was really angry with the particular well-known business school that had done this with her, but had used something called the Neo PI, which is a psychometric which is usually used in clinical settings but it's got the the labels we some of them were familiar with so extroversion introversion but it's got one scale that's neuroticism and she was told that she was really high on neuroticism and they didn't know how she had got to the position that she had got to oh
0: that's damaging huh
1: it was really damaging so i ended up meeting her about something else and we started talking and then when she met me a few times she just said could i talk to you about something and she told me and she said it's completely destroyed my confidence you know i'm getting really nervous of public speaking now and so i ended up coaching her and we put it back together again but it's incredibly damaging but the point being yes On that scale, she was highly neurotic. I don't think that's the correct word to use personally. But what often happens is people will channel that positively. And that's something she'd done. So whilst that was causing a discomfort for her, it's not a nice mental state to be in. It wasn't coming out negatively in terms of how it was displayed to other people.
0: Right. but And that, that word is such a loaded word. Oh, it's horrible. Plus the context to say, we don't know how you got to that position. I mean, that's, that's, you should be, I don't, they don't disbar uh, psychologists well, or people that should administer be a that whole, test.
1: But that's the thing. It wasn't even a psychologist that did it. And I was like, it's a clinical measure. And it's not even a psychologist feeding back.
0: But that, don't a, get
1: me on to that
0: because there's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, those tests are fraught. I mean, those tests are really, depending on who's administering them, is is there a test that you rely on more or is there a method that you use for, you you mentioned earlier that you work with leaders to figure out what their personality is. Is it just through a conversation or series of conversations? You're not using some sort of a test or scale?
1: We use psychometrics, but the way I always use them is lightly. So I use them as a point of discussion rather than a, this is what it says. And therefore you don't you tell someone <laughs>
0: they're too neurotic to be in the job no. they're in. Huh.
1: It's, I mean, it's a really useful <laughs> way. Of, <laughs> it's a really useful way of hypothesizing because one of the things you're doing there is you can't know for certain what someone's personality is or how they are, or even how they're going to be tomorrow. But you can look at patterns of behavior and then you can hypothesize with that person, and if you've got something in front of you that they filled in about themselves, you can say, oh, that's really interesting. Um, you know, you've come out as more extrovert there than I would have thought, given that we've just talked through your life and and you described situations where you were getting your energy from being alone. Tell me a bit more about that. Mm-hmm. So it helps add texture and depth to to that understanding, but it should never, ever label
0: or box someone. So yeah. So even at the end of your conversation, if it's someone you don't think you can help, they should they could have learned something about themselves that's constructive and <laughs> not not be afraid hope, that they're in the wrong job. Yeah.
1: No, I hope. I don't hope. call the
0: recruiter and start looking for a new job. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, learning more about what you've been working on and and the ideas and mirror thinking, I was wondering about in the weird we just talked about work flexibility at the at the introduction here is it harder for people to find role models or even mentorship when we're decentralized you know in the in the old model when you and I came up you had to go to an office and you had to be present and you had to be there but but that gave you an opportunity good or bad to witness behaviors i saw some i saw some crazy things i saw people behave in wild ways that i was like whoa I learned not to do that. You know, don't, don't throw food at people. (laughs) Um, But we also pick up a lot of good habits. You say, Oh, that person's an excellent look how they just disarm this whole tension here. Now it's all zoom. And so in a way, kind of what you said about fictional, you know, where fictional characters in, in films are edited and you're only getting the sound bites Zoom is sort of that as well, where if it's, if the tension gets too high, someone could just turn their camera off and disengage and then come back on when they're calm. And that's, that's a great thing at some times, but it is hard for someone who just joins an organization to get a sense of what it is.
1: It's so hard. It's really hard. And I think while Zoom is amazing and Teams amazing, um, they don't give us the immersive human experience that we have in being in the same room as someone for a start you you feel like you need to stare at the screen the whole time when you're talking one-on-one for example actually in a normal conversation you'll be looking up you'll be looking out of the window you'll be looking down at your hands you're looking around and it so it makes it strained you're concentrating very much on what's being said which means you're potentially missing some of the um social nuances the emotional nuances that are being communicated as well so to try and learn how to do your job how to fit into a culture in that way is really hard
0: plus plus you've just opened my eyes to something else because we're both focused on the blinking green light we're not you're you're looking at it and I'm looking at it we're kind of locked in this look at that so you're also not giving off the the social cues that I wouldn't receive anyway by the way because I'm looking at that green light but you might be fidgeting with your bracelet or you might be changing your posture but I wouldn't even know because all I'm looking at is the is the camera to try to make sure that i'm in, you know that I'm engaged that's the primary thing I'm trying to communicate to you
1: Absolutely. And, and the thing is, 95% or more of our cognitive activity is unconscious. So all of those sorts of things, we don't realize that we're picking up and we're understanding and we're interpreting and they're feeding iteratively to our understanding of the world around us. But when but when we miss them, when we don't have them, it actually, it's, it's really bad for our emotional well-being as well as our understanding of where we fit and how to behave and all those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. And I wonder what we're pretty early in this hybrid workspace. And I know there's people that are really proponents of it because of the flexibility. There's huge upsides there. Um, I'm a beneficiary of, of having the opportunity to work at home or to be in the office. It's great at times. Um, but I wonder long-term what it means for people's relationships with one another, the, the bonds that you form with colleagues at work, um, through working through tense things together or working through big projects, where once you felt like, "Oh, we're all here together in this place solving this," and now it's like, "Okay, meeting—we solved it. Meeting's over. <laughs> you click the button, and you're gone." Have you observed in any of your organizational work any changes in that regard? I
1: think it has a, it has a huge impact on the twenty-something year olds because. They're, i mean in terms of from a neuroscientific perspective the brain is still developing until you're in your late 20s I mean the brain is plastic till we die but it's still developing till the late 20s in something called emerging adulthood and there's a need for those social interactions it feeds it feeds their understanding of the world and their oh. well-being and and i I've seen it most in in that population who are, I think sometimes struggling a bit to understand their place or where they fit. And it's all the intangible things. It's the things it's hard to put your finger on and say, this doesn't feel quite right, or I don't fully understand this, because it's not a black and white thing. It's not a tick box, um, which makes it difficult to articulate or or to do anything about.
0: And you also, I mean, we're human, so we never know we don't know what we don't know. And so if you're new to the workforce or if you're new to a company or, or new to a job in the same company, you could always have that feeling like it's not going quite right. I don't have any idea or nobody's complained. So I guess it's going fine. And yeah. Obama, you know, and, and that's a disaster. But it's all because everything's confined in some ways to much less stimuli about your work relationships and your performance.
1: Yes, totally.
0: How do you help people? And maybe you don't help people, but have you thought much about how people can find role models in that kind of a hybrid situation? Are there are there other tricks or other tools that they could use or is it pretty much the same ones and just being more intentional?
1: I think it's being more intentional. I think it's making sure that wherever possible, you're having those human interactions. And that can be someone outside of work. If if you're having, if you if you're living like in a different state or a different country to your team um, and you still want to develop and grow, well find someone locally who you can talk to. Just talk to, just go and talk to someone, ask them how they do things, ask them how they found things. Because all those things add to our understanding of the world, maybe not the company that we're working for in that context, but our understanding of the world and our place in it, which is also very, very important.
0: How do those people, if you know, younger people, I guess are a good example, but any, this applies to anybody, how do they know if they've chosen a good or bad role model? That's
1: a good question. I've not been asked that question actually.
0: See Fiona, think, this is what I do.
1: That's great, I like it, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I mean, what I would say, if I, if I take it back to what I would say you're looking for when you're looking for a mentor, um, it's do they share your values? do they share your outlook and beliefs if they do that's a good place to start from you also want to consider what you said earlier which was i saw like how not to behave i saw not to throw food at someone for example yeah and which by the
0: well, way don't do that
1: don't do that no, no not good especially not if it's your boss um <laughs> <laughs> not even on zoom um i i call it counter mirroring. And we learn an awful lot from seeing things done badly, but often because we're more conscious, but it it, it violates our values It's one thing often when we see things done badly, um, or in the case of the food throat, it's just a big mistake. Um, and we're very aware of it. So whilst we're not aware of most of our social interactions, when it's something that we think's wrong, we are aware of it and that embeds it in our memory more.
0: Uh, because it registers as a as kind of a violation. Absolutely. Is there a what's the what's the role of peers in this? I think of um, another element of having a shared space is knowing, okay, this is my my partner, my peer, whatever it is. That's that's a colleague. We're both learning and we're triangulating lessons. (laughs) Have you is that something that you work with in organizational psychology that that you coach people on how to how to do that kind of shared learning and shared modeling?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's invaluable. We can't learn on our own. We can't grow on our own. And that's, you know, my first book is known as a self-development book. And that's great. But it's very hard to sit and read a book and do something on your own. For example, you need someone as a sounding board, someone as a guide, someone who says, "Nah, don't do that. Do this." Or, and you know, when you say things out loud, they just make more sense. And it's actually to do with where it is in our brain and how, how we're organizing
0: it. Or, but- or you realize, "Oh, that's crazy." Now yeah. that when it comes out of your mouth, you go, Oh, I I can't think that that's not right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So you might've been awake in the middle of the night, worrying about something going over and over and over it. And then you actually say it out loud and you go, Oh, Oh,
0: <laughs> Sounds yeah. silly.
1: Yeah. And yeah you're, the book is... you're
0: talking about is defining you, right? That's the first yeah. one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I was really lucky that I won, um, self-development book of the year. So I should be saying, yeah, self-development woo. But I do think it's really hard to do on your own. And, um, you can get tips from reading and, of course, you can stretch your mind and your thinking through listening to podcasts and, and all those sorts of things. But really, we need other people to tell us whether we're being a bit crazy or whether that's a good idea, to benchmark our own behaviour, um, to give us support, to be a sounding board, to hold us accountable and appear is a really safe place for that to, to be.
0: Does, does mirror thinking work better? I mean, mirror thinking is not a series of exercises, but do, do role models have a more beneficial effect when it's a team learning from a similar role model or, or working towards a similar goal? Or do you, do you coach people to work as for like shared progress or is it more individual one-on-one that in your, in your work?
1: Well, we do. Um, I mean, I work with leadership teams as a team and I work with, um, and with mentoring, we work with group mentoring. So it it's all helpful. It comes down often to those values again. Do people have shared values? So if a team has shared values, they can have completely different personalities, different opinions. They're far more likely to work as a team if they have shared values than if they don't. Um, and so, with any group, it's looking at are those values shared, and then from there you can extrapolate and and you can have really useful learning if you're doing something together as a team.
0: So in the in the hybrid world, for people, do you have have you had any experience with people? kind of figuring out how to transcend zoom to find success with modeling behavior and, and uh, achieving like a more uh, meaningful mentorship or is or is it just more how you tap into the tools
1: I think you know to be honest mentoring can happen over zoom <laughs> and a while uh, mentoring you're learning you, you can be learning in a sense of a role model and you're observing that's behavior, but you're more learning the response that that person has to what you're saying and using them in a different way. Um, I call that, I mean, I say there are three levels of mentor. There's personal, situational, and aspirational. And when we think about role models, we tend to think of the aspirational. So yeah. the person that's amazing that we'd like to be like. The situational are the ones that people that are potentially influencing us, but they're just there. So a teacher that we don't like at school or um, a community worker or um, a fitness instructor or someone that we have contact with, we might like, we might not like, they might influence us, they might not. And then the personal is the people that are like mentors. They're the people who are role models in our own life. And when you ask a group of people who has had the biggest impact on you in your life, so I, did, I I actually was speaking to a group of CEOs last week and I asked this question. And it's amazing because it will always be a relative. Not all, actually, no, that's a lie. There are, there are a few examples where it's not. But most of the time, it will be a parent, um, a grandparent. So this This last week, there was someone who said it was actually a daughter they didn't know they had and they met, but it's a really close emotional bond and mentoring is more fits into that personal space so it's it's learning from that person who's guiding who's helping us think things through who's working out helping us work out our way and find our path
0: and is it is it because there is a they've passed the emotional barrier there. There's like a, you, your guard is down, their guard is down and they're able to guide you in a, in a more intimate way. Well, the,
1: I mean, the foundation to it is trust and without trust, it's just doesn't really happen. And that's where the situational can sometimes just have no impact because you don't necessarily have a strong bond or some trusting relationship with right. that person.
0: Unless it's, unless it's like a really intense situation where you have to, Quickly jump in, you know, like in a, in a crisis situation, that's why yes. bonds are formed really quickly in those situations.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And you do trust one another in that situation because you have to, because your survival is dependent on it.
0: But that's, I was, as you were describing the the family roles, I was thinking, oh, maybe there's a time dependency that, you know, it's over time. It is. Uh, but then the person that just met their daughter, then I was like, oh no, then that, then that breaks that. Maybe that breaks the time thing. It's more about some sort of an emotional...
1: So I think, I mean, the emotional and the trust is is the biggest factor. Then there's how much you're exposed to someone, of course, has an influence. So if you, I mean, if you have a step parent, for example, you're growing up who wasn't very nice to you, um, you don't necessarily trust them but you've been exposed to them over many years, it will Mm -hmm. shape your behavior and it might shape their behavior as in if they were, for example, think worst case, emotionally abusive, you may then be emotionally abusive to to people around you or your children, or it can do what we were describing before. It can create that counter mirror. I do not want to do this to anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, There doesn't necessarily need to be the trust in that situation, but there's a high level of exposure to a person.
0: Very interesting. Fiona Murden, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. So nice so to talk to you. For
1: having me. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you.
0: Hey, you too. Where can people find you online?
1: Oh, well, uh, website is my name, fionamurden.com and Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn are all the same. Fiona Murden.
0: Yeah, you were clever. You got the you got your name everywhere you needed it.
1: <laughs> I just don't think there are many Fiona Mertens. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't hurt either. Yeah. No, it doesn't hurt. Well, thanks again for making time for me. It's really lovely to speak with you.
1: Thank you so much. Adam.
0: Strategy Inside Everything is produced by me, Adam Pierno. If you like what you've heard, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Actually, I have no idea if that helps or if it's ever done anybody any good. If you really want to help the show and you like what you've heard, share it with someone else you think will dig it. That's the best way to help the show and keep the conversation growing. If you have an idea, a question, or want to push back, go to that'snotaninsight.com where you can send me a message or leave me a voicemail that will be added to future shows. Music for The Strategy Inside Everything is by Saw Square Noise. For more information on me, you can go to adampiero.com to learn about my books, my speaking, and my consulting practice. Thanks for listening.